What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. On today's episode, we actually have Maddie Parker, who is running for mayor in Fort Worth, Texas. You know, this conversation was uh, it was pretty cool because I think a lot of times our, our questions and ideals about a certain politician are heavily focused on their policy initiatives, which are important, don't get me wrong, but we forget to know who the person is. We forget to know what they're actually about, who they are at, the, at their core. And so a lot of my uh, questions and conversations within this podcast were trying to, to pull that out a little bit. And I think we, you know, we had a great conversation. She's all about connecting the dots and, and communicating more effectively within the education system, specifically between the, aid, the grades of K through 12. And so she wants to do a lot of game-changing things for the education system because our kids are tomorrow's leaders. We hear that a lot. Um, but when you're finally in a position of, of you know, uh, leadership within a city, that those things can actually come to fruition. So we had a great conversation. Uh, Mrs. Parker is, is really cool, and I hope you guys enjoy. All right, we are recording, Mrs. Parker. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. You're welcome, Caleb. It's nice to meet you and have a conversation today. So you have a uh, you left chief of, chief of staff to be the nonprofit. Tell me a little bit about your nonprofit that you started. Sure. So I'm CEO of Forest Cradle of Career and the Tarrant Two and Three Partnership. So um, several different pillars of work, but the first one we really focused on is T3. Um, and T3's focus is getting all of our students in Tarrant County onto some type of post-secondary pathway, college, career, or military. Because right now in Tarrant County, only 23% of our students go on to complete a two-year or four-year credential. And when you aggregate it down by economic status, our students that are growing up in a low-income household, only 14% complete that post-secondary um, certification. Mm. And it's important to note, we are agnostic about what their path is, right? If they choose four-year, awesome. If they want to go to TCC, they want to be in a trade. All those things are fantastic and a critical part of our economy. We're noticing students are just not able to connect the dots um, while they're in that K through 12 system. Um, and we now know that it really requires something post, post high school, right, to, to, to succeed in our workplace. In North Texas, we know that about 70% of the jobs really require some type of post-secondary credential, especially if we want to keep people at a living wage, a way to raise their families. Um, I think that's the ticket to getting us away from this conversation about raising the minimum wage. I want everyone mm. to have access to a job um, that provides the, the care for their family that they deserve. Um, and I think that really starts with opportunity and education. And I know we can do a lot of a, a lot better here in Tarrant County. And we've made great headway just in a short year since our nonprofit started. So you kind of drifted a little bit away from the, the political side of the city and, and started diving into education. Yeah. I did. And honestly, Caleb, it's, it's like anybody else. I mean, I've got three kids, um, ages four, 10 and 19. And I, yeah, we're, we're spread out, but we know, you know, you, you, you understand how vitally important a strong education foundation is for students. And I found it to be unacceptable that every student in our, in our community, every kid in our community doesn't have the same access to quality education. Hmm. And to me, it's about opportunity. And I know that if adults in the room can get out of the way and help serve students, put our differences away, we can absolutely get there. And T3's main mission has been in this first year to support Fort Worth ISD, which is our largest school district in Tarrant County or in Fort Worth, rather 80,000 students. But we will expand to other districts um, across Tarrant County because we know they all need the right support. Our model is unique. So we traveled the country for about a year when I was still chief of staff actually with a group of folks um, led by some really smart leaders in philanthropy 
to ask the question, what should Tarrant County be doing differently, understanding where they're, where they're succeeding across the country. And that's how we created our model, um, which is really built upon strong advising within our schools. Um, we partner with the TCU College Advising Corps. Um, College Advising Corps is a national organization um, that was founded and now has chapters across the country and they have a really strong chapter at TCU. So we recruit a lot of them first gen students, um, students from these communities um, straight out of TCU after graduation and have them go back kind of Peace Corps for mm. two years and serve in those inner city high schools to help these students find what their pathway um, pathway is out of high school. So there's a lot of detail there. You and I can talk about all day long, but it, all in all, it's about support for students in the right way, meeting them where they are and, and helping them understand that, that we don't have the answer to what their path should be, right? This economy is rapidly changing, but we absolutely want to match them um, in a really intentional way to help them realize that their career path is is out there, right? Let's mm. help them find it. So essentially with all, and I actually, I would kind of like to dive into a lot of the, sure. these educational things. You say we talk about it all day. This is kind of my alley. I love how um, the, the development of the children is really the future of, of the world, right? The future yeah. of every economy, the future of every workforce is it's starting K through 12, like at kindergarten, or first grade, you know, what are we feeding the kids? You know, I love public health. My, my, my degree's in public health and okay. that's kind of, that's kind of my niche. Um, how can we change for the better big picture wise, entire areas, entire population groups. And as you mentioned, low SES, low socioeconomic status, um, the nutrition, the, uh, the choice, the ability for freedom to be able to choose what you want to do down the line is massive. So um, I, I am curious how you got into this? How did you get into, like, why is this your passion? Sure, that's a great question. So when I was working at, at the city for mayor and council, we actually started with early education efforts. So really focused on the critical importance of quality early education. In Fort Worth, unbeknownst to a lot of people and in Tarrant County, we have some of the strongest leaders um, and depth of understanding of quality early education um, and, and the difference maker that there is there, right? You can make an economic case, um, you have to actually understand that 90% of brain development starts before it becomes before the age five. Mm -hmm. so every dollar we invest as a community into these kiddos and pays dividends later on, right? It's not just a, a moral thing, right, to do. There's also a bottom line component to this. So we started in early education. Um, I was one of the founders of Best Place for Kids and Best Place for Working Parents, which continues today. What's that? And that's focused on... That's focused on helping our business community understand the criticality of supporting their workforce and working families. Um, the juggle is real, right? We've all been there. Mm -hmm. When you in it to be supported by your business place to have maternity and paternity leave, mm -hmm. you know, health insurance, all the basics, um, ha having something as simple as a lactation room, making sure your parents feel su supported, all those things lead um, to a a a best place for working parents designation that we now mm. deliver in, in Fort Worth. And we're looking at expanding that across the country. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's good work. And that's happening here in Fort Worth and Tarrant County already. So obviously want to expand on that. So when we spun off to create Fort Worth Cradle to Career and T3, it was just about continuing that work, finding even deeper partnerships, the grassroots approach to understanding we need to meet families where they are. We have an incredibly diverse community in Fort Worth. Um, I, for one, think that's an extreme asset. Yeah. That's but awesome. it's obvious that we're not reaching all communities, right? They mm. don't understand the resources that are out there. Um, we have a lot of families that are refugees, families that were English is not their first language in the home and, and students need to feel supported. And again, you'll hear me talk a lot about opportunity and the recognition in our business community that student success is our success. 
that unless we start investing in the talent in classrooms that sit there today, we will never move forward as a community, right? You can import all the fancy tech companies and all the talent you want to, but our students deserve better. Um, but the great thing is there's work happening, got to connect the dots, focus on data and student outcomes and make a difference. And um, it became my passion because I just believe in it wholeheartedly, no matter what we do in city service um, in local government, state, federal, it will not matter if we don't focus in education. Um, sometimes it's contentious, but I'm agnostic about what parents choose for themselves. Um, you know, if they choose to homeschool their kids, if they choose charter school, if they choose public school, if they choose private school, um, we've got to stop pitting parents against one another mm. and recognize it is a personal decision for your family what is best. You know, like I said earlier, I've got three kids. They're all tremendously different in what their needs are. And the power of ensuring that your community cares about you through education will pay dividends for generations to come. And I'm excited about that. So no matter what happens with this mayor's race, you'll still hear me pounding the pavement and focus on education. Mm. Um, I grew up in a really small town, Heiko, Texas, went to a small to a school, but I got a great education, Caleb. Mm. I, mean, I had fantastic educators and I wouldn't be here had I not had that experience, right? So I want all kids to have that. That's really cool. And that's kind of something that uh, I've been, I guess my wife and I have been really kind of uh, trying to figure out what we want to do for the future. You know, I had such a good time or a good experience being homeschooled. I learned so much. It really fostered my passion for learning. Um, it actually made college way easier. You know, a lot of my peers um, who were in the public school, school system jumped into the college and they're like, man, this is ridiculously hard. Yeah. And yeah. for me, like I'm, I'm spending, I don't know, maybe, maybe an hour a week on college and, and get in through my degree. It's just, it's not that hard, but that's not, that's not saying I'm because I'm smart, have a better IQ. It's just, I have a passion to learn. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that happening a lot of times with our, with our public school system. Yeah. Um, and that's, I don't know if that's district dependent. I don't know if that's because you have a lot of these issues like school choice, where you can't really choose where your kids are going to be able to go based on yeah. your income. And you could literally be living across the street from somebody who goes to a completely different school, a way better school. Um, and that school choices, it, if you want to get into that, we can. But me being a possible educator for my kids down the line, you know, I, I would love to know that if I do send them to some sort of public school or private school or charter school, that whatever city I send them to is going to be a really good uh, system for them that they're going to cater to what they need. Cause I think a lot of times our systems try and put each person into a box, but we really, nobody's really meant to live in, in a certain category or box. Like we have, like, there's a reason why DNA is never identical. <laughs> it's because yeah. every person is completely different, you know? Well, I say things like, so <laughs> we won't have to dive into the school trust so, so closely, but here's the deal. Imagine if you're a single mom, and you're, you're working two jobs and you've got two kids and the public school down the street is fantastic for your oldest kid, right? They are thriving and doing well. They're on grade level or above, but then your youngest kid who's in first grade, is just not working, right? Um, it could be a learning disability. It could just be the social factor. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, but you don't have a choice on where to send them. Uh, maybe transportation is an obst obstacle, right? Maybe there's not a, another um, charter school nearby. You don't know about them. Maybe language is a barrier, right? All those factors. And I just, I want to make sure every parent feels supported and that they know where they, the opportunity to send their kid to quality, a quality school is there for them, right? And it's important for me to note that every kid is different. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Just because the public school down the road works for this kid does not mean it works for every student. So, um, but there's no stronger advocate for our public schools than me, right? Running in this race, I understand them. I've been in those schools. I talked to principals. Um, we've attended public schools for our own kids. So I understand how complicated it is. Um, and I have a lot of hope and optimism about changing, changing that for the better. Um, but again, just, just goes back to kind of put your swords aside and let parents choose what's best for their kiddos. You know, I have a, I have a few friends that, that were homeschooled as well. And much like yourself, they're incredibly successful and excelled in college. And part of it is they got fantastic practical life experience mm-hmm. while they were in homeschool at home. Sometimes that's missing in yeah. all of our schools, right? In yeah. a structured environment. I've had that conversation with a lot of business leaders. Some of them are in the trades, right? They may own an electric company, et cetera. Um, for electricians, excuse me, and they would love to help drag these apprentices out of high school and into that trade earlier and give them practical Mm. um, skills. Or it frustrates me that every kid may have to take physics, but they don't know how to balance a checkbook or, Mm -hmm. you know, open a bank account or or home economics. Like, man, like that may have sound sexist a few years ago, but I would have loved to learn how to make some toast and eggs, right? When I was in school learning the hard way. Or (laughs) shop, right? So what's hilarious, I, I just told you earlier that I'm a stay-at-home dad now. And in high school, my home ec class, I had to do the grocery bill. I had to do the entire grocery for you know my entire family. Yeah. And now it's like I'm using it every day because yeah. I'm now the stay-at-home dad. My wife's working full-time and I do all that now. So mm-hmm. it's that type of stuff that I think, like you're saying, needs to get into these, yeah, these systems. Practical learning experience that, that students really deserve, um, especially if they're being raised in, a, in, in this environment where everything is here, right? This, mm. this is more advanced than any computer you and I had in college. Mm-hmm. And um, we need to ensure that this isn't now a hindrance to their education. Uh, that we're also giving that practical um, life experience that I know I want my children to have. So how do you do that? Well, I think for one, like I, I'm all for technology in classrooms, but I think these things we just talked about, like a little bit of return to sometimes like the 1950s, 1960s, the curriculum that we're teaching, right? Um, but also infusing what the future workforce looks like. I don't think we're doing that. I think we're kind of stuck in the confines of a four by four education um, that gets passed down at a state level. And we have to think bigger. Um, Ooh, I don't good. think we're infusing the business community enough. And by business, I mean really broadly, like the roofing company down the road, the electricians, the plumbers, um, the folks that are president and CEO of a bank. Like, what is your pathway to get there and helping kids see that no matter what their dream may be, there's a fit for them. And it has to start earlier. It really needs to start in middle school. If you understand what happens um, in the trajectory and in, in, across urban education in the United States, um, we talk a lot about high school, but what really happens, it happens in middle school and junior high. Um, the demarcation is real. So between eighth grade and high school, how many students we lose. In our lower mm. income communities, you can lose as many as 30% of your students that never make it through high school. Wow. Right. Um, and so I think you can avoid that if you introduce some of this opportunity for these kids earlier in their trajectory. And then they're like, heck yeah, I'll take algebra two if it means I can go do that job with Bell Helicopter. That sounds fantastic, oh, right? Wow. It's just, a, a, it's the same thing with your kids to get them interested. You show yeah. them something um, that, you know, sparks their interest um, to get them through a tough subject. So I think more of that is really important. I want us to reevaluate long-term or actually forcing kids to take in high school to make sure that's really what they need to be doing. Because what happens sometimes is you get a student who maybe they, maybe they can't do calculus or pre-cal or they're really struggling in biology, right? But they, they really want to start their own business or they know they're going to go work for this roofing company or whatever. So let's get them the schools that they need to be successful in that. Hmm. Um, we, we're not listening to students enough to understand it and we're not infusing um, successful business people in the, in the model either. So there's a, there's a 
a trend that's been going on within our education system that has to do with it's basically removed the outside environment completely from uh, education. And there's a lot of cool books on them. One, one book is called uh, uh, The Last Child in the Woods, and it talks about the nature, he calls it nature deficit disorder, and where our children have literally just been removed from the outside environment and how key that is to success, both in health and in education. And a lot of schools have removed PE completely to where it's, you know, 20 minutes of outside time for an eight hour day. And then you have all this, this homework coming home that you still have to stay in, indoors. You know, there's very little windows. There's, there's the whole variety of topics within that. So what do you know? Have you done, I guess, let me back up. Have you researched much about how the outside environment affects educational outcomes? Sure. Well, you know, I grew up in Heiko on our family's farm. So we were about 15 minutes from any civilization. Uh, I had a party line until I was 14 years old. So I spent much of my childhood on a huffy pink bicycle up and down a dirt road, right? Um, I knew how to deal with a rattlesnake well before I could do anything, else, right? Um, I had a yeah. first permit by 15 because I yeah. had to be able to call my brother to school way out in the middle of nowhere. My first job was really um, whatever my uncle needed me to do, maybe, you know, driving the, the truck uh, hauling hay. All that to say is it was formative for me, right? And I'll be honest, I, when, if I go a few months and I can't get out of town, it, it does bother me. Um, and my husband and I are really fortunate enough to have a place to go. And my family's place is still there. And, and his parents have a small place as well. But our, our, a lot of our kids in inner city, you're right, they don't have that access. Um, I think for me, understanding the criticality of that, and then what is the real role and responsibility of a city, right, to make that possible? And it's open space, open space and parks and proximity in every single neighborhood mm -hmm. so that it's walkable for every family. Um, there's a park down the street from our house, Bernie Park, and we're probably there four days a week, Caleb, mm -hmm. at least. Um, playing sports, on the swing sets, on the trail, right? And every kid has to have that, in my opinion, to grow up in a happy, you know, supported way. And I think we do a great job. We have a fantastic parks department in the city of Fort Worth. And we have some new initiatives that, that we need to continue in open space programming to make sure we're buying available open space to make sure it's not all developed. Um, but there's a key responsibility there and it all ties into education, as you just said. Um, you know, you, you get some one-off um, programs, community gardens, for instance, that are infused in our school curriculum, which is awesome. Hmm, but I that's cool. It's standardized across the district because what you hear usually is you'll have one really great principal, one really great teacher that's committed to that. And then if they leave the community garden kind of, you know, yeah. A lot of work, right? So um, I'm kind of all over the place, but you can in involve no, this a lot is perfect. Of that process, right? Um, and using Texas AgriLife and Texas A&M system and all the master gardeners, all those type of people, they would love to help out um, because it all ties together. You mentioned nutrition and food and where it comes from teaching kids at an early age. Um, I think that's where you tackle health disparities and mm -hmm. food insecurity. It is all tied together. Um, so you're really the you're really the first leader I've actually heard say this. This is all stuff that I've researched, and it's my passion around public health. Um, but you're really the first person I've actually heard say this, and that's really cool. So well, it, it well it's the it's the to me it's not rocket science, right? And I'm by no means an expert, but if you understand um, the health disparities that exist in Tarrant County, um, for instance, let's talk about seven six one zero four. Um, as one of the lowest life expectancy, it is the lowest life expectancy rate in the state of Texas in that zip code. Really? Yes. And access to healthy food, um, access to grocery stores, right? Transportation, all these things tie together. Um, and I believe strongly, if you want to tackle health disparities, you start with the youth. 
And we started a lot. There have been phenomenal programs started in the city. Blue Zones is really notable. Oh, yeah. You started right. We just need to keep those going on steroids and making sure community members um, be really intentional about that work. I know that Leah King, who's the CEO of United Way, is working really hard um, along with some other community leaders to focus in 76104. Um, we can't stop there and, and making sure that we make public health a priority um, through the food we eat. Um, and it would solve so many issues. Um, it's not lost on me. Think about this if you and you know more about this as someone that graduate with a public health degree, but the ravages of COVID and you drill down deep and understood who lost family members and who was impacted the most, those comorbidities, mm-hmm. health, you know, heart disease and diabetes that were often caused by poor nutrition. Um, and so when a virus comes through, you're impacting these families in huge ways. Like that's why you heard about two brothers, right? Loss of life or, you know, all the tragedies that we heard about. And I'm not minimizing the impact of the virus and, and, and how um, really, really devastating it was. I'm just simply saying, I want us in this aftermath of COVID to really think about public health in a new way and understanding what was the root cause, right? Why is it that someone like me yes. can get and survive and be okay, right? It's complicated, maybe blood type, we are getting through that. We don't know all the the ins and outs yet, but we also have to acknowledge that obesity, diabetes and heart disease um, were all three really top killers if you got COVID. So, um, and those were existing well before COVID came along. So Mm -hmm. you and I could go on a tangent, but I think those are important things for city leaders to really lift up and and tackle and not pretend like you have all the answers, like bring the healthcare experts, bring the public health experts to the table. That's you just, you're, you're singing my language right here. This is, this is exactly all the things that I'm, I'm trying to affect and bring awareness to in communities like Fort Worth. And so before I get into this nutrition tangent, why is that one zip code the worst? Well, it, it, for a variety of reasons. So um, some people would tell you it's historic, right? It's a marginalized community that has um, a predominantly African-American population, Hispanic population, um, access to um, the amenities that you and I take for granted, like a grocery store, access to fresh fruits and vegetables or all those things that are needed. Um, I think the right city infrastructure and investment there um, and, a, and, a, and a kind of a call to action, I think has been lacking for a long, a long time. I've also heard people say that it's also near the hospital district. So maybe there's some incorrect calculation about who dies at the hospital and then it gets looped into that zip code. Hmm. All that to say, all it takes is driving around 76104 to recognize we can be better. Hmm. So what do we wanna do? Um, and working with community leaders that are invested have been screaming for help for a long time, um, but it's not the only issue. So you also have, we have some of the, I think we have the fifth highest teenage pregnancy rate in the country. Um, We have a significant maternal and infant mortality rate issue in this county. These are issues that longtime city leaders have been talking about, um, community leaders for a long time. And I know with intention, we can absolutely tackle that. So I'm hopeful that in this aftermath of COVID that we've all focused on, you know, what does it look like to have a comprehensive public health strategy where we understand where all of our deficits are and how that's impacting our kids and our families um, to be better, right? Um, and I, I just think we got to connect the dots better. And our society has built these groups. You know, you talk about connecting the oops, talk about connecting the dots. You know, we have the public health group, we have the uh, economy group, we have, uh, you know, the whatever group it is. It's all in like these different kind of spheres of life, and our our social spheres 
aren't talking to each other, but they all affect each other. Yeah. You know, if our socioeconomic status is super low, then of course our public health status is also going to be affected by that. And getting into what you talk about grocery stores and um, how grocery stores and being having access to, to good food and good vegetables really affects your health. Well, also the groceries, like the good nutritionist groceries are way more expensive than the, 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 you know, chicken nuggets that are a buck. So what do we do about that? Well, um, one thing, and these are, I'm going to take credit for things I didn't do. So um, the Zones Initiative is now part of Texas Health. They have a fantastic team there um, led by Matt Dufresne. And they've done some things like, hey, go to the Texas Agricultural Commission and make sure that you can use your staff benefits um, at a farmer's market, right? Um, and double up bucks, which is awesome because make sure parents um, and families that are on SNAP can afford the healthy foods we know are there. Additionally, we know that teaching families how to cook those foods and make them make them taste good to your kids. I mean, I struggle with that. Like, don't you want some sweet potato? My kids look at me like, no way. <laughs> so, you know, it's a struggle in teaching your kids from an early age. But um, I think, again, it's just about utilizing the resources that are already here um, and making sure that we're lifting that up as a community and as a city and just continuing some of the great work that's already started um, and, and going forward. In, in terms of expense goes, um, it's hard because we've tried, we, we, farmer's markets became kind of in vogue, right? Where it was cool to go to the farmer's market and get your produce and, and food. All and niche. Was one to carry it. So there's a limited quality quantity out there. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's a little easier said than done to say, hey, let's just do a pop-up market in this area. Well, they don't really, it's not really worthwhile to them because they just sold all their goods to central market. So they're fine. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, supply and demand, it's back to the basics of Texas, right? Um, agriculture here in the state and understanding how that impacts our food supply. Well, that's interesting you say that because you know when you, when you have big grocery trains buying up all the food, the foods, fruits and vegetables, it's kind of like a mini monopoly. You know, when you have a, a large grocery store buying up everything that's happening at the farmers market, they get to get to control those prices, and the and the competition doesn't get to drive the prices down for the consumer. And we're also seeing that with healthcare costs as well. You know, the, it's again supply and demand. When you have a a lot of one system buying up all the product, they get to mark up that product at whatever cost because there is no other competition. I know. So how, so healthcare, gosh, that's a big topic, but just, just a few weeks ago, my family and I were going through this. My husband has to have a minor procedure and needed to, you know, schedule the appointment, go to the specialist, not a big deal, like nothing scary, just needed to tackle it. Well, you know, he has multiple degrees and is a very smart, aggressive <laughs> and he, he would give you this, he wrote notes about how difficult it was and how he was having to advocate to a nurse that didn't know what she was talking about, had the wrong set of tests out. And then like, that's not the one I needed. And no, that's not how you're supposed to do it. And imagine if you don't even speak English, you know, and how difficult that is. So the, the system is flawed. I don't care what anybody says, it is not fixed. And without access to good healthcare, um, it's a significant problem. But on the good news, in places like Fort Worth, you have phenomenal organizations that are trying to serve the public. We have wonderful federally qualified health centers. They call them FQHCs here in Fort Worth and South and North Side Fort Worth. JPS has wonderful clinics. Mm -hmm. Cook Children's has wonderful community clinics. Um, I think sometimes we don't, back to communicating to the public. I don't know that we've communicated all those options to people and make sure they feel safe and that they're welcome to go into those facilities. Um, I know that UNTL Science Center, another fantastic organization, institution, community, they've worked really, really closely with Tarrant County and the city to help us through this pandemic. And I, I know that some of their leaders were really adamant about when we go through this vaccine process, um, for community, 
let's not stop there, right? These are folks, a lot of them have never had access to healthcare before and they're showing up for a vaccine while it's more expensive. What does it look like to scale that up and introduce them into the system, right? To, to, to make sure they know, okay, now, did you know that your closest clinic to your home is this location and you can go get an appointment and have all your other evaluations done? That's how you keep people out of our emergency rooms, right? And keep them healthier. So obviously complicated and not all of that, I'm not saying is the role of city government, but I do think you need a mayor that's knowledgeable about who needs to be on first, who's on second um, to push some of these critical issues forward. And I think what I like about you is that your mindset is there. It's not just that you know the information, but you're able to connect those dots. And right now, that's not what we're getting in no. almost every sphere. No, and you'll hear me talk a lot about Washington-style politics being out of um, out of this campaign. We're a nonpartisan race. I'm happy about that, frankly. Um, and it's not, I, I am a conservative. I'm not afraid to say that, but you can be conservative and progressive. And in this race, every given Tuesday, you have to have five votes on a variety of issues. And if you go to your proverbial corner, we will get nothing done in Forward, Texas. And I don't think there's a place for that, frankly. Um, and, and honestly, also at the end of this race, my husband and I are going to live here and raise our kids here. And we're going to be really proud of the race we, we ran. And so I want to make sure I'm true to who I am, which is that person. Like I, I, for 17 years, was the person behind the scenes, usually ducking to get out of the picture, trying to put everybody in the room, reading the room, could tell who was mad afterwards, you know, <laughs> and, and making sure we were still communicating. And I think because of the political season we've just gone through, regardless of which side of the aisle you were on, everybody's at fault. Like, man, we can be better. Hmm. And I, I want Fort Worth to be that example. I want to come back to that, um, especially on the communication side of that. That's honestly why I started the podcast because communication is lacking and it's lacking significantly within uh, the younger population because the younger population just doesn't read anymore. They're not going to read the Star Telegram on the newspaper. They're going to listen to a podcast though. So there's an interesting thing that um, back to kind of the healthcare costs and uh, kind of uh, getting everybody involved again. You know, that's the biggest hot topic debate right now. If we a lot of studies are showing that if we removed the admin cost, the extra paperwork in healthcare, that would actually cover everybody who's uninsured. And that's kind of what we're seeing nationwide. A lot of people are driving up costs because they don't have insurance. Because they don't have insurance, it goes falls back on the systems, which goes back on right. taxpayers, so on and so forth. So essentially, if we streamlined communication, if we got rid of excess waste paperwork-wise, had providers talk to each other, that money that is saved in paper would actually cover everybody who's not insured. Yeah. That's on the federal side. Is there a way that just, I know this popped up at you, but is there a way locally to maybe do that? Um, I won't say no. I mean, I think you could pilot a lot of different um, type of opportunities to see what you can do in specific areas, right? If you know health disparities exist in certain places or the number of uninsured folks is higher in specific areas of the city, um, why not go in and try to do a pop-up clinic, right? And see how it sticks. And um, I know um, and I actually talked to a young man today that working in the North side community, and he's interested in that because um, th there's still a need there. Um, really utilizing places that are already trusted, like the North side community clinic, the FQHC I mentioned earlier, um, and trying to scale what they do for people. Um, I think to pilot those things and kind of have an initiative outside of all the noise is what we'd have to do. And one thing that's unique about Fort Worth and Tarrant County is our hospital systems talk to each other. Right. Of course, they compete for patients, they compete for big surgeries and they compete for the right doctors, all those things. But at the end of the day, they continually communicate to make sure they're providing the absolute best health care they can for our community. 
and it was so evident during COVID when all this started. I mean, they're talking probably weekly more than that, right? To make sure they understand how many beds do we have when we move these patients this direction. I mean, if you were an EMT, you understand they're sometimes they fight over where the ambulance goes, like it needs to go mm-hmm. this one, that hospital, right? So, but they're still communicating. And I think Fort Worth um, has to hold on to that. Um, and make sure we keep any kind of bickering politics out of critical um, infrastructure like healthcare for our citizens. Um, and then I know for you know access for children continues to be an issue. I'm really worried about kids right now that have been out of school for a year. Um, thought there was a mental health security study, a white paper um, that the CEO of Cook Children's Rick Merrill had talked about, and I haven't read through the whole thing. I can send you a link to it, but. Cool. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of going off on a tangent about mental health, but it's absolutely tied to, to our healthcare system. And right now we are in crisis because of COVID um, and children, especially. Mm. It's heart wrenching to understand what's happened to Cook Children's and the number of suicide and self-harm attempts that have gone up because students feel disconnected. Um, and so that's another big topic we're going to have to reel from after COVID that was already a problem beforehand. Wow. So since you jumped into mental health, um, the homeless population, yeah. huge, huge thing. Um, and it, it cost the city, I think I actually did an analysis on it. I think it was cost the city between 40 and 50 or 40 and $55,000 for the city to have, to have one homeless person a year in their city yeah. because of all the resources that they, they have to consume. Um, a research was, uh, multiple researches studies were done in, it was Europe, I think Italy, where they did the exact opposite of what we do in America where they actually gave the homeless population resource. They gave them like tiny homes and have set up an entire community uh, system that checked on these homeless people daily that, and eventually they were able to get these people out of their homeless States because they had a roof over their head. So, you know, tiny home costs roughly 10 to $12,000 to make. That's still far less than, you know, the 40 or the $50,000, one homeless person cost the city. And that homeless population is slowly increasing. It's 3% or something like that every year in the city. So if you're mayor, what do we do? So uh, bear with me for a second. We're going to nerd out. Okay. So Sweet. This is how this works. So the housing urban development holds all your money for homelessness care, right? They trickle okay. down through what's called a continuum of care or a COC. And every county is responsible to create the COC. Mm-hmm. So in Tarrant County, um, several years ago, when I was still at mayor and council's office, we determined that it was really necessary to make sure your elected leaders had ownership in the process, understand where those dollars were flowing. And so we created a leadership council at the COC. That's your county judge, um, your city of Fort Worth mayor, Arlington mayor, Parker County judge, and the Kennedale mayor is also included. The point being, so your elected leaders need to be more knowledgeable about how the money flows. Um, and then the agency that's responsible for helping disperse those funds is Tarrant County Homeless Coalition or TCHC, which is led by a woman named Lauren King. She assumed that position, I think during the middle of COVID, she was interim and then became permanent. She's fantastic and knows her stuff. Um, she has a close working relationship with some other organizations that are really critical to homeless services, works closely with all of your shelters that are there on Lancaster. Um, and so all those details are important because governance matters. Policy matters when it comes to helping the homeless population. Um, I personally think you can look no further for a bad example of how quickly the problem can get out of hand is Austin, Texas right now. So at the same time, Fort Worth was starting to see an uptick in homelessness and did some things from a policy perspective that not everybody agreed with, right? Um, a panhandling, anti-panhandling ordinance, for instance, or trying to keep camping mental. This was a few years ago. Austin was doing the opposite. Well, now if you go to Austin, driving I-35, 
all over the city, quite frankly, it's terrible. Um, and we can all agree that is not the way anybody needs to live. It's incredibly unsafe. So fast forward to now in COVID, we know our homeless numbers are up. You don't have to go, you, it, it is not rocket science, just drive around the city, you can see it. Um, I think it's a variety of problems and I'm excited to get to work with our um, community homeless, um, TCHC and our community leaders and homelessness to understand where they're seeing the pitfalls and problems. So um, obviously job loss is a critical issue. Um, rapid rehousing, making sure we're building additional permits for housing and, and putting people into housing as quickly as possible. So it's, in, other, in other words, rapid rehousing is about as soon as someone, let's say I become homeless and I show up at a shelter, we wanna make sure myself and my family immediately get into services in a home to keep them out of the shelter environment, right? That's really important. Um, and we also know the high percentage of folks that have an alcohol or drug dependency issue and then mental health issue that they're experiencing that's causing them to be homeless or causing them to want to be on the street. So access to mental health care and access to alcohol or drug beds is really a problem across the state of Texas. So it all layers on top of each other. Um, and I do not believe it is inhumane to create a limiting structure in place to make sure we have less people sleeping on the streets, less people in tents. Um, right now, we're really at a critical juncture, right? You've got a lot of people camping. We have cleaned them up really well before. We've worked um, with our code compliance department and our police department and EMT, MedStar, fire. And when you do it the right way, you plan several days, you give them lots of notice to make them understand they're gonna be moved, um, but you have to have a place to put them. Um, and so it, it is complicated, but I know that we as a community can tackle it, um, but I do not believe for a second letting us get to where Austin is, is the right answer. And you'll hear me speak truthfully about that, right? And we have to stand up. Um, and if you talk to the folks that have, have devoted their lives to serving those that are homeless, they agree with me, right? So how do we keep those people into housing? Affordable housing is an issue, permanent supportive housing, making sure we're in, additionally as a city supporting the building of permanent supportive housing. That's, that's housing for people we know are going to are going to remain on some type of subsidy for the rest of their life for a variety of reasons and making sure they're supported there nimbyism is real not in my backyard people get really scared about that so we have to be really intentional in communicating what these permanent part of housing initiatives are there's a really great example on race street of the palm tree initiative that was done by flora brewer i think it's 26 or 27 units or permanent part of housing it's in the middle of all that you know um, urban renaissance that's happening on race street People didn't huh. know they walk right past it going to a restaurant or a bar. That's a great example. And we need more of that across the city. And that sometimes is politically tenuous, but I'm happy to tackle the issue because it's the right thing to do. So in a, in a, as concise as you can, what is the root cause of oh, homelessness? I think it's absolutely mental health and, and, and drug and alcohol dependency. Uh, I mean, think about that for a second, mm -hmm. because you and I, right. Even if we lost our jobs, right. Um, we would we go go to the shelter and we try our best to get into a program and get back on our feet, right? If we didn't have some of their kind of co-occurring issue, but when you talk to social workers that serve these populations every day and they and, and understand how complicated it is, um, it often is a result of mental health or drug dependence. The other issue though is foster care kiddos, kids that are not adopted and are put in a foster care system end up at a really high percentage rate um, in our homeless pop. If you if you drill down deeply, so um, all these things are really connected, as you can tell. <laughs> No, and that's why I love, again, you're one of the first leaders, if not the first leader I've talked to that actually is connecting these dots and is trying to do something about it. Um, I want to know how you're going to do that as we wrap up. But at first, I want to know how you're going to tackle communication problems, because that's what we're talking about right now is we're, we don't have that happening within a lot of city governments. There's little communication happening with the younger generation, um, mm -hmm. both age-wise and 
language barriers. Yeah. So I know there's there's a whole lot of policies that are required for the language barriers and stuff, but there's not a lot of things happening with politics change in local cities with the 30 and below population. Yeah. And and again, it's because the technology boom, there's not a whole lot of reading going on. So how do you, how do you well, tackle said, that? Absolutely. Um, and we like our short sound bites too. That's yep. an easier way to consume information. So the first thing I think we've always, we've got to do really across the country in the state of Texas in our city is, is tackling emergency communication. So we know that something's not working, right? People don't know where to go. When, when the power went out, my power was out for four days people didn't know where to turn for information. So you're on Twitter, trying to charge your phone, making sure you have the latest. I mean, I was guilty. Get on Facebook, find out where the water station was going to be. It was all over different websites. That doesn't work. We've got to streamline communication and make sure once we figure out what the mechanism will be across the state and across the city for that type of information, blast that out to everybody, making sure they're all signed up to get those alerts. So that's first. When it comes to a mayor's office, um, I think actually Betsy was a good example of not governing behind a desk and being out in the community, but you can only be out in the community and see so many people when you have a population over 900,000. So I absolutely would love to have a podcast. It will not be a 30 minute conversation. It might be a 10 minute check-in like, Hey, here's what's going on in council this week. This is what I know is issue. This is probably the most contentious topic. Here's where you need to come to sign up to speak all the things that are going on, given the kind of the, the run of show in a way that you could consume pretty quickly on your way to work. Right. Um, um, in, in an easy way, um, have guest experiences from different people, make sure you're translating that into different languages, which is important. Um, and, and really then secondly, if you're, if we're not reaching people that are under 30, which I know we're not, um, how do they want to consume information? Right. Um, as much as I hate to think of it, I may need a Snapchat account, right? I know firsthand, my daughter doesn't message. Usually she'd rather Snapchat, right. Um, or DM on Instagram and trying to figure out different ways to meet people, but at the same time, still keep that professional quality communication to make sure you're not getting too out there. Right. Um, and, I think all those things are really important. Um, Twitter continues to be a really important communication tool. Um, look at the mayor of Miami, right? Mayor Suarez, he is killing it on Twitter. He is disruptive in his ideas, talking about Bitcoin and allowing Bitcoin. I love that though. I mean, that's what you want in a mayor because disruptive innovation is what's leading the country in every other industry. Why not local government, you know? And we have an opportunity. They're moving City Hall to Pier 1 building. I know some people didn't agree with it. Some people love the idea. Some people hated it. It's always, happened, yeah. right? Always happens. Let's use it as an opportunity. Parking will be free. What does a new chamber look like? I would love to have meet and greets outside of the chamber every night so that what happens is if you've ever been to a city council meeting in their current building, it's sort of like this, when you go down to speak, you have to go down these stairs and you're kind of looking up at the council and mayor's office and it's kind of intimidating and you have your two or three minutes to speak and you go sit down and you feel so disconnected. Like, did they even listen to what I had to say? Um, but you can flip that, right? They still have to have that process. Um, it it's works for a reason, but making sure people feel more connected to their elected leaders before a meeting starts, right? Um, and actually to meet people, break bread, proverbial breaking bread, yeah. right before meeting. So, just finding new ways to communicate for sure. Well, no, that's really good. It's interesting. It, <laughs> tongue tied over here. I've been having allergies, so I'm like <laughs> stuttering on my words. Um, it's interesting you say about the podcast because I actually started doing that with the city of Keene. I do that. What you just said, exactly what me and the city of Keene do on a weekly basis. Oh, cool. So, isn't that weird? So. Every week, I do a quick update on what's happening with the city, and then once a month, I have a conversation with city leaders, and it's like 15 or 20-minute podcast or something like that, um, and it's that streamlined communication. 
And it's kind of con- con- switching what a town hall used to be mm-hmm. and trying to put it back into a podcast because the, the town hall, again, I think it's generational in my opinion. Um, I, I've never been to a town hall. I don't think my voice would ever be heard. I don't know what's going on with town halls. I get the, the significance of it, but I don't think that's the best way to go moving forward for local Not politics. Not in a big city either. It's, I mean, yeah. there's a room for that occasionally, I suppose, but I agree with you. Um, there's also a new um, technology or app called Clubhouse. Have you heard about this? So. Yeah. It's in beta form. A friend of mine invited me. I just attended my first meeting, I guess, or, you know, conversation yesterday. Super interesting. I'm kind of curious where that goes because it's sort of like a town hall on this um, at very topic specific. You can kind of choose the clubhouse you're going to be in for the day and or huh. that hour. Um, you could use that same kind of concept at City Hall. We need to demystify what happens at City Hall yes. uh, and bring government to the people. Yes. I, mean, I know them. We have fantastic employees that work for the city of Fort Worth. Um, they're not perfect, right? And no one is. Um, but I think by allowing them to be more connected with their community, it'll only help them do their jobs better. Exactly. And that's, that is a huge way to kind of communicate with that younger generation as well. So that's awesome. I love all your ideas are amazing. Um, lastly, as we wrap up, you know, you, you, we've talked about a whole lot. We've talked about all the connecting the dots, you know, say you get elected and you become mayor. What are the first three things that you're going to do to kind of implement all these all these changes and uh, kind of streamline what you want to do? So there's going to be a few emergent needs that I believe any mayor needs to focus on. The first is going to be the understanding the city budget, the impact of COVID, how this new stimulus money, the CARES Act funding before, we may get another $185 million reconciling all that. Um, and if there's a runoff, that'll be mid-June. The budget is starting to be written by the city management office. Got to dive in first, right? What are our priorities? Where do we see things? Where are our shortfalls? Are we spending money on infrastructure? Um, and really spending part of the summer doing that. So that's first. The second is going to feel unrelated to the city, but it's on education. So we are at risk of losing an entire generation of kids. We know the backside from COVID is real. So we have got to push our education leaders to make sure they have the supports in education reform to put those kids in classrooms as quickly as possible. That might be a jump start to the school year, maybe additional day school year in the summertime. That may be voluntary summer reading programs. That is rallying this community as quickly as possible kind of a front porch approach to doing business to say, if you're a faith leader, if you're a community leader, if you're an educator, if you're a teacher, if you're a retired teacher, we need your help because every kid needs to be in some type of educational environment. It can still be fun, but some type of literacy rigor to get them back on track. Um, It is really, really significant of a problem. And I think every mayor across this country needs to use their bully pulpit to really make that difference. Um, And the third is gonna be on economic development. So we have some fantastic leaders. Um, Brandon Gingelbach, excuse me, Brandon, Brandon Gingelbach is still is now the CEO, president of Fort Worth Chamber. He's got some bright ideas, working with our own EcoDevo department. But we are falling short, and I think we need to rally the troops, put people in a room to come to brainstorm and understand what are they already doing that's working, um, and double down our efforts because we need to attract the best and brightest companies included to Fort Worth, Texas, to continue to thrive. Um, and we've fallen short there. Um, I think in the last eight weeks, we're roughly one of the only Texas cities, large cities, that hasn't received some type of Fortune 500 company relocation. Um, and we're just not out there telling the story, in my opinion. Um, frankly, I was actually on a call yesterday for, with the Arts Council on the arts, and we talked a little bit about the importance of, I, I did at least, of, of understanding that art is economic development and how we can push the city forward by championing some of our cultural initiatives. Um, so those would probably be my three top priorities initially in those first six months. Um, to really start a plan on EcoDevo and then um, sort of put band-aids on education, understanding what our plan is, creating some real strategy around getting our kids back on track. Um, and that first one is understanding what's going on with the city budget. 
That's awesome. Okay, last question. 10 years or 10 years. <laughs> Where do you want to see Fort, the city of Fort Worth? Where do you want to see yourself? Yeah. Oh gosh, good question. So I'm 37. Um, I have four kiddos. So that would make me 47. Um, by then, I think I would be probably back in the private sector um, or nonprofit sector here in Fort Worth, serving the community. Um, I'm not a climber, right? I'm not interested in um, the ego of the next thing. Um, I don't know why anybody would want to go to DC. It sounds miserable to me. Um, and then um, in, in Austin, keeps you away from your family too. I, yeah. I think. Um, so, you know, continuing to innovate, pushing the needle. What does it look like to put forth on the map? Um, Forth by then, gosh, you'd probably have 1.2 million people, mm. I guess, uh, right in there, something like that. And I, I want us to have some of the best infrastructure, the most talented workforce, an education system that's enviable across the country, um, a few new beautiful skyscrapers in downtown, um, and, and a corporate relocation story that across the country, people now know who Fort Worth is. Right now, mm. people don't notice us, but I wanna make sure in my tenure as mayor, we continue to put Fort Worth on the map. So I'm excited about that. That's really cool. Like what if Fort Worth was the place to be for your kids, you know, for your, to have the best educational outcomes, to have everything from, you know, nutritional resources to public health resources, all of it, that would be, that'd be really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we can, we can tackle it if we're intentional. Well, I'm I'm excited for you. I wish you the best. I thank you so much for having this conversation. I'm really glad. I'm really glad that we get to just kind of talk about real life. You know, not not necessarily like your views. Okay, what do you believe about abortion? And it, yeah. you know, let's let's just talk about who you are. And I really appreciate this. So, Absolutely. well, Kayla, I appreciate hanging with those two little babies. I will do. Have a good one. Bye <laughs> bye. Bye.